Um, good to see you all. I, I am somewhat disappointed. This is the climactic message of our Abraham series, but it'll be online. So uh, people, hopefully people will listen and be able to hear that. Um, is the Christian faith ever confusing to you? I mean, sometimes there's this like beautiful simplicity to the Christian faith, right? That it's, that it's love God and love your neighbor, right? That, that's it. That's the faith. You live that. And sometimes I have that overwhelming sense of just, yeah, it's simple. Love God and love, love my neighbor. And yet there's other times that I feel like there's a, th- this confusion, this complexity, especially the times when I feel like life circumstance doesn't fit what I thought God was doing. Have you ever been there? Where, like you, you have that sense of, of what God is, is shaping, of moving along and pressing into, and then you're like, oh, it's starting to make sense, and that bam, life circumstance is completely different. It, it, it looks and it doesn't make sense, and you're back going, God, what is going on? Or how about this? When you sense that God is telling you something and yet it makes no earthly sense. And it's going to be really odd if you go through with this. One of my favorite uh, titles of a book is Stark Raving Obedience by Ted Kelman. And uh, it's a book about listening and discerning the voice of God and then obeying and following through. And he tells a number of real life stories which are quite entertaining. This one, uh, it's been a number of years since I read the book, but this one stuck in my mind. He was telling about a young adult who was trying to learn to discern the voice of God, to, to recognize the voice of God and obey. And he was driving down the street and he had this sudden impression that he was supposed to pull into the parking lot of the 7-Eleven. So he pulled into the parking lot of the 7-Eleven, right? And then he said, okay, what now, God? And he got this distinct impression that he was supposed to walk into the store and stand on his head in front of the Slurpee machine. Now, I'm not making this up. Ted Kalman would say it's a real story. It tells a story, all right? So what would you do if you're in the parking lot in the car and you have this impression that you're supposed to go into the 7-Eleven and stand on your head in front of the Slurpee machine. <laughs> Some of you are just like, ain't gonna happen, right? I, I think on my, my difficult days, I think I would be paralyzed with questions. God, do you even like 7-Eleven? I mean, is this, is this you? Uh, do, do I, am I willing to be a fool for you? Is this obedience? Right? What, all these questions, I, there would be a sense I might be paralyzed with questions. This young adult decided to go in. And he walks past the attendant and he stands on his head in front of the Slurpee machine. And I guess as the story goes, the attendant was, uh, can I help you? And uh, so the young adult tries to explain, he's listening, and felt like the Lord told him to do this. The attendant walked from behind the counter, and he said, 
uh, well, I guess I should tell you, I was going to take my life tonight after my shift, and I gave God one more chance, and I said, God, if you're really there, then you need to have someone come in the store and stand on their head in front of the slippery machine. I'm not making that story up. It was a, a true story. I mean, what about those moments when it makes no sense? It, it doesn't seem, and yet, there's this inconsistency that, that, that either with life circumstance or the word of God and where you're listening and what's happening and, and what do you do in those circumstances? You know, this is the climactic story of Abraham. Abraham has been journeying uh, with the Lord now for uh, 25 years, actually. We've been uh, track, we've been not preaching for 25 years, Abraham, but when Abraham was 75, when the promise came, you remember Genesis, some of you were here for Genesis 12. We were back in Genesis 12. And he gave this incredible promise, this five times blessing. I'm going to bless you, bless you, bless you, bless you, bless you, right? And at the core of this promise was the promised child that even though Abraham was 75 and Sarah was very old, well past childbearing, at the heart of the promise didn't make any sense that he would have a promised child, that, that Sarah would be, uh, become pregnant and then that this promised child would be the, the one that, all, that, that God would create a great nation from Abraham and all the world would be blessed. And they waited and they waited for 25 years from Genesis 12 to Genesis 22, which we're going to be in this morning. 25 years... Finally, the promised child is born in Genesis 21. Finally, they waited, they stumbled, they wrestled, they doubted, they tried to help God along, they did all this, and finally, Isaac is born, hallelujah. Now, Genesis is going to pick up the story of Isaac and follow him. That's another sermon series we could get into maybe in the future, right? But... Apparently, God is not done with Abraham. In fact, this is not only the climactic moment of Abraham's story and Sarah's story, this is probably potentially the most confusing moment in Abraham's journey. Because do you know what God is going to tell Abraham to do with this promised child who's at the core of God's promise. He's going to say, I want you to sacrifice the promised child. A, a common practice to in Abraham's day, he knew exactly what that meant to, to actually take the life of Isaac, the promised child, what would you do? I mean, talk about 
It making no earthly sense. It doesn't make any heavenly sense. Like all that God had been saying to him, he's there, he's bringing him, he's leading him. Why? I think Abraham's response is incredibly telling for us this morning. And the why behind what God does is incredibly instructive. I do find it interesting to think about what's not in Scripture sometimes, where Scripture is silent. And we are not told if Abraham tells Sarah about what he thinks God is saying. I'm going to go with, I think he passes on that opportunity, right? That he might live that principle of some things are better left unsaid. I'm assuming that he doesn't, but we don't know for sure. Just silent. But what he does is he obeys. As we read this story, I want us to slow down a bit talking about waiting because I've found this incredible, there's these incredible illusions and pictures to the cross of Christ. We're going to slow down. You'll see on, our, on the scripture that we have there, I've just inserted a few scriptures. And I want us to, to think about how this story reflects Calvary, the cross of Jesus. So Genesis 22, verse 1. Sometime later, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Then God said, take your son, your only son. That phrase really represents uh, many of the times in the Gospel of John talking about in the older language, the only begotten Son. That Jesus, the only begotten Son. Take your Son, your only Son, whom you love, reflects Luke 3, 22, when Jesus was baptized and the Father pronounces, this is my Son whom I love. Whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moria. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain I will show you. We're told later that Moria was actually in Jerusalem. And many think that Moria was the region, the, the mount where the temple would be built. At the very least, it was in the vicinity of Calvary, the vicinity of the cross. He's journeying to Jerusalem to sacrifice his only begotten son, whom he loves. Early the next morning, Abraham got up and loaded his donkey. Jesus came riding into Jerusalem on a donkey. He took with him two of his servants and his son Isaac. When he had cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out for the place God had told him about. On the third day, that went a little bit more obvious. 
Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. He said to his servants, stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship and then we will come back to you. Interesting, this this expression of faith on Abraham's part. He says, we will come back. The inspired author of Hebrews later would reflect on the story, Hebrews 11, 17 through 19, and say this is, the, Abraham had the sense of resurrection here. Didn't know what would happen. Didn't know he would take the life of his son, but had the faith of resurrection. And so really the author of Hebrews sees the first sense of resurrection, that God is a God who brings re- resurrection in this story, in a sense Isaac was resurrected or saved. Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and placed it on his son. Isaac carried the wood for the sacrifice. Jesus carried his own cross. And he himself carried the fire and the knife. As the two of them went on together, Isaac spoke up and said to his father, Abraham, Father, yes, my son, Abraham replied. The fire and the wood are here, Isaac said, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb. John the Baptist pointed out to Jesus and he said to his disciples, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And the two of them went on together. When they reached the place God had told him about, Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood on it. He bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood as Jesus was laid upon the cross. Then he reached out his hand and took a knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham. Here I am, he replied. Do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. Abraham looked up and there in a thicket he saw a ram caught by its horns. He went over and took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. Romans 3.25, he talks about the substitutionary sacrifice of Christ. So Abraham called that place the Lord will provide and to this day it is said on the mountain of the Lord it will be provided. The angel of the Lord called to Abraham from heaven a second time and said I swear by myself declares the Lord that because you have done this and have not withheld your son your only son that language Reminds me of the Romans 8.32 passage where God, it says, he who did not spare his son, 
but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him, Jesus, graciously give us all things? You did not withhold your son, your only son. I will surely bless you and make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore. Your descendants will take possession of the cities of their enemies, and through your offspring, all nations on earth will be blessed. In fact, in Galatians 3.8, the Apostle Paul would quote that very verse and say, God would announce the gospel in advance of Abraham. Through Abraham, all nations will be blessed through you because you have obeyed me. Then Abraham returned to his servants and they set off together for Beersheba and Abraham stayed there. What an incredible story. Incredible that in God's heart and mind, he filled this story with all these illusions that point to the story of the cross. What a great way to begin the Lenten season, is it not? To reflect on this story. Now, I've enjoyed personally and have been ministered to by the story of Abraham in a variety of different ways, but there's two ways that I, as I was reflecting on a summation, that this story really reflects some of the territory we've already seen and wrestled through and how he wants to speak to us. And I wanted to reflect in those two ways. One, the things that we've learned about our heavenly father, what he is like, how he works. And then secondly, what he invites us to do in response to who he is. And the first is this, learning about our father. I'd say right from the opening story of Abraham, Genesis 12, we see the promise and almost right away, do you remember what, G, what, what God does with Abraham? Abraham 12, he gives him the promise, he says, good, yes, and then what does he do? You recall? He tests him right away, right? He goes, he leads, there's a famine, and he goes to Egypt, and then he tests him. What does he do? And unfortunately, Abraham does not pass with flying colors. And in fact, just in case, throughout the story of Abraham, we see a God who tests. Did you notice the opening line of this story? Just in case we had missed this aspect about who God is through Abraham, right? Just in case we hadn't observed this, verse 1, what does it say? Sometime later, God... Boy, I'm so glad that that's the God of the Old Testament and that he doesn't test us in the new. <laughs> that's not true, is it? The story of Abraham illustrates that God, whether we like it or not, is a God who tests us. I'm going to be quite honest with you this morning. I don't really like that. I wish it wasn't true about God. In part, the reason why I don't like it is because it's confusing to me. And it doesn't quite fit all the time with my picture of God. Why? 
God who knows all things, why would he test? And not just once, but several times. Why is he a God who tests us? I think part of the story of Abraham has really instructed me as I've thought about this week after week after week, seeing him test Abraham and to reflect again on motive. Why does God test? Is that a good question? The Hebrew word in Genesis 22.1, the word is nasah. And that means to either test or tempt. In actually, if you look at the King James Version, it says, and God tempted Abraham. Now, recent translations change that. You know why? Because the New Testament says God never tempts you, right? So they went back, well, that doesn't, wait, if God doesn't tempt, why is he tempt? Oh, the word has a, a richer meaning that based on context, you can translate that Hebrew word either test or tempt. And I want to suggest the difference between how you translate that word as context or motive. Why was God testing Abraham? Was it so that he might fail and stumble? No. That's the motive of temptation. When the enemy tempts us, what's his motive? To fail, to mess up, to sin, right? To do that. That's not God's desire. He's wanting to prove. He's wanting to test. He's wanting to, to grow Abraham through this experience with him. And so rightfully so, modern translations don't say, and God tempted Abraham. They say, and God tested Abraham because of the motive that's there. God's testing, he's shaping, he's pushing into, he's wanting Abraham to grow and to prove his faith. Now fast forward to the New Testament. Part of the Lord's Prayer, we pray, lead us not into temptation. Why do we pray for God not to lead us into temptation if God does not tempt us? My wife just told me I ask too many questions this week. Can, can you just move on, Eric? Have you ever wondered that? Why do we pray God... Lead us not into temptation if we know he will not tempt us. The Greek word, it's uh, perasmos, perasmos. Guess what? That can mean temptation or it can mean trial. It's a similar way. It can be trial or proving or test. It can also be temptation or enticement, adversity or affliction. Based on the context, you translate that. That's why the Pope just a couple months ago came out and said, you know, I think we translate that poorly. 
It should be lead us not into trial. Why? Because sometimes God leads us to test us, to grow our faith. We get to pray about that. God's never going to tempt us. Listen to the Hebrews passage, Hebrew 12, and as we think about God as a God of uh, trial sometimes or testing, listen to the motive that's behind this. Endure hardship, again, a word for trial or difficulty, as discipline. God is treating you as his children. For what children are not disciplined by their father? They, he's talking about earthly fathers, disciplined us for a little while as they thought best. But God disciplines us for our good in order that we may share in his holiness. What's the purpose When you as a parent, a father or a mother, when you discipline your child, what's the purpose of that discipline? Is it so that they're a fail? Only when they're vindictive, right? To bring correction, to bring growth. Listen to the Hebrews author goes on. He says, no discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who are, who are trained by it. God is working righteousness in us. God is working holiness in us. God is working peace in us in these times of trial. Let me ask you this. How do you usually respond in times of trial? When God is tempting, uh, testing, when the enemy is tempting, I'm still learning not to pout. I'm still learning not to complain. I'm still trying to learn that God is a God who loves me and therefore disciplines me. He allows trial. Sometimes it's uh, temptation from the enemy, absolutely, but guess what? God says, I'll use that too to grow you. Even though the enemy means it for failure and struggle, I'll use it to grow your soul. I'll learn to expand your capacity. I'll teach you to see my work in the kingdom and discern my voice. I'm trying to learn how to discern what God is doing in the moment rather than be pouty. I wish I could say I've learned that and I've understood that but I'm not quite there yet. He invites Abraham into a particular response. And in the same way, he invites you and I into that response. Now, before we talk, hold on to that idea. What's that response that he's inviting us to in those moments of testing? I want to highlight one other thing that we've seen through this series with Abraham and that, that our heavenly father is a God who's central to his heart is that he is a God of blessing. Look again at verse 16 here. He says this, 
he says, I swear by myself, because he can't swear by anyone greater than himself, right? Declares the Lord that because you have done this and you have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you. This is back to the story, this throughout the entire story. This is God's heart. This is God's longing. I will bless you and make you de- your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky, as the sand on the seashore. Your descendants will take possession of cities of their enemies. And through your offspring, all nations of the earth will be blessed because you obeyed me. Again and again and again. And God is saying, I long to walk with you as your father and to pour out my blessing in your life. Wrestled with, do I believe that? At the core of my heart, can I really embrace a God who tests and allows trial and at the same time a God who blesses? And not just a little bit, right? Like this is repetition. This is ongoing. Listen to what Paul says in Ephesians 1.3. He says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with a couple of things in Christ. Well, I misread it, didn't I? What's he say? Everything that you and I need, every blessing, there is a flow from the throne room of God for us. The the story of Abraham, we get to see God's heart. He says, this is my longing for you, that you would be a people of blessing. Some have argued, well, actually, it's James who says this, you have not because you, you ask not. I'm wondering if we're not asking because we don't really believe that at the heart of God is blessing and favor. Some have argued that there are many unopened gifts in heaven. And when we get there, we will see those unopened blessings. He's wanting, he's inviting us to ask for his blessing. How do we respond that God is both a God of trial, of testing, and yet at the same time, a God of blessing? Let's talk a little bit about the trial. God, to learn covenant living, is a life of faith and integrity and action. That's finally the beautiful model of Abraham. I don't know if Abraham would have been able to withstand the passing of this test earlier in his journey. But what an incredible way that God is testing, is shaping, and growing, and finally gives this greatest of tests, his only son. 
And we see Abraham not paralyzed with questions, not pouting, not wrestling. We see him obey and trust. And, and, and we know he, what resurrection or what, he doesn't know how. Everything that God has said up to this point in his life, two plus two does not equal four right now. He doesn't know how it makes sense. He just goes. He trusts God with the faith and his action, his life, he lives in integrity with his faith. The apostle James says this, was not our father Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions we're working together. That's covenant living. That's faithfulness in God. And his faith was made complete by what he did. I don't see any contradiction with Paul's words about salvation through faith, uh, by faith, through grace. Faith brings us into the kingdom and then our actions should reflect that faith in God's kingdom. God is looking for those people that especially in times of trial and difficulty and pain, our actions, our words, our lives will reflect that obedience and that faith. Again, I, I'm trying to learn to not pout or not tr struggle. For whatever reason, God, through the story of Abraham, he's been bringing me again and again to my life in 2009, which was probably the hardest year of my life. Right? It, it seemed like things were disintegrating. Marriage and parenthood, fatherhood, calling and ministry and everything that I was experiencing seemed out of sync with what I thought God was doing and, and there was a deep confusion that was there I wrestled again God I don't, I don't understand what's happening praying for, for transformation and change. I was praying so much and it seemed like there was no response. And I didn't know, I, I, was, I was not paralyzed, but there was this sense of, God, I am so confused. To be honest with you, I wanted to quit. It's a number of years later, I can tell you that I just... I wanted to find a job where, I, where no one knew me and I wasn't in front of people. Yeah, Taco Bell. That was what I was like, okay. I was work in the back, yeah, of Taco. I, I mean, I just, well, I didn't have to think or I didn't have to, you know, just no offense to if you work at Taco Bell, but I just was like, I, this is so hard and I'm so confused and I don't know what you're calling me to do. And my primary thing 
the way that I got through it is I said, okay, God, today, what are you calling me to do today? What does my faith lived out in integrity look like today? Because I don't get it. I can't figure out today, let alone tomorrow, right? And, and yet that was today. What is the, mo- I don't understand, but I know that you don't want me to sin. I don't, you, I know that my temptation as I was feeling uh, sinned against, as I was being faced and, and pressured, not just from what God was doing, but especially what he was allowing and the struggle and everything in me wanted to sin back. Everything in me wanted to take vengeance. Everything in me wanted to get even and just quit and leave and flee. And I knew that wasn't the way of faith. I knew that wasn't the way of integrity. And I said, okay, God, today, today I'm gonna do my best to to be faithful. I'm gonna do my best to put one foot in the front of the other. I, I'm gonna do my best to not huddle in the corner of my house in a fetal position and quit. And day by day, God blessed that. Day by day, he brought understanding. Day by day, He did this miraculous work of forgiveness in my own heart towards others. Day by day, he taught me that I don't get to respond to how I think people should be treated. I respond how God has treated me, regardless of their friend, or enemy, they're my neighbor, and I need to love them. And day by day, there was a a faithfulness in the midst of confusion, a, a faithfulness. I think that's what Abraham is demonstrating here. A faithfulness and an integrity, even at potentially the most confusing moment of his life, and God blesses that. In fact, some have argued that God started with a conditional promise, if you obey me, but because he obeys him here, it becomes unconditional. God says, I'm going to do this through your life, no matter how much your kids and your descendants respond, I'm going to do this because of your faithfulness. What a heritage. Last thing, how do we respond to God as a God of blessing? And and I found it interesting that I think that this has to do with motive as well. Motive as well. Why does God bless you and I. Why? What's his intention? I had a seminary student a couple of years ago. He was really bothered. He went to this other church. 
And he said it was a big growing church, not in Colorado. Um, it was a big growing church. And he says, this is what the pastor did. This was his main illustration. He had a suitcase full of money and he opened it and he says, people, don't you realize God wants you to have this suitcase of money? He was like really bothered by that. And I was like, did you go up and get it? No, I didn't say that, right? But he was bothered. It, it was this prosperity gospel that he was hearing. Why does God want to bless us? I was reminded of this parable. I'm going to read real quick from Jesus. He said this, Watch out, be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. Life does not exist. Uh, Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. And he told them this parable. The ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. God blesses him with a harvest. He thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, this is what I'll do. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And there I will store my surplus grain. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy. Eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool, this very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? This is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves but is not rich toward God. I love that parable because it causes me to say, am I being rich towards God? He's not saying it's wrong to store. He's saying the purpose of abundance is that we might be rich towards God and his children. He blesses us so that there might be an overflow from our lives of blessing to others. That's his motive. That's his intent. Is that he's wanting us to demonstrate to the world that he is a God of blessing. If the worship team would like to come forward. And that is my prayer in part walking through Abraham was for us to see my, my prayer is for your individual lives, but also as us as a congregation. That I don't long for us to be a mega church. I long for us to be a church of blessing. I long for God to pour out his favor and, and blessing in our lives, within us, that that blessing might flow from this congregation. That there might be streams of blessing from this church on a hill. Because I think that's God's heart. It's God's heart for your life and for mine. It's God's heart for this community of faith.
And in fact, this table, do you know it's meant to be a table of blessing? It's meant to be that substitutionary sacrifice where we don't get what our sins deserve, but we get what Christ's life deserves. Christ is the one that lived in obedience. Christ is the one that was without sin. Christ's life is the one who God blesses and says, this is my son whom I love. And we get to switch that out at the table. That our sin, our unrighteousness that brings judgment that's placed on Christ and his life of righteousness that invites God's blessing is placed on us. And as we come to the table, we're filled with blessing and we're meant to leave blessing others.